All right. So like I said, the last part of verse 18 will begin our reading there. God's word says this, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. We could say salvation there as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with Full courage, as now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, for, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. And so, uh, just so we're caught up to speed here, the context this morning, because it's important, if we're talking about facing the unknown as uh, followers of Jesus, what is this unknown that Paul is facing in his life? As we've explained each week, Paul's in prison at this point. This is one of his prison letters to the church. And so he has a, a number of uncertainties and unknowns in his life. Will he remain in prison? Will he be executed? Will he be released and continue uh, his gospel ministry to the churches? The church at Philippi is faced with a number of unknowns themselves, which brings us to some important lessons this morning in facing unknown circumstances within our life of Christ, with Christ. Life is full of unknowns, isn't it? Life is full of unknowns. I, I venture to guess this room is filled with people who realize that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's like when you see someone, when you long to see someone the next day, we, I usually try to say, Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow, or Lord willing, we'll gather on Wednesday evening or Sunday morning. Uh, so we don't know what tomorrow will bring, let alone each waking moment of our life. Uh, when I was a kid, I distinctly remember an evening when I was getting ready for bed. Now, I have to admit, I was kind of one of them scaredy cat kids. I was scared of the dark. I was scared of bugs. I was scared of a lot of different things. And as I crawled into bed, I noticed something flying in the shadows in my room. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it was big enough to catch my attention, yet small enough to be in the house. Outside light cast shadows through my windows, and my imagination made this terrifying flying creature appear much larger than it actually was. The unknown monster would remain in the corner of my room near the ceiling for the remainder of the night. And so what was my response? Right, I just kind of pulled the covers up to my nose right here and just kept my eyes peeled on that little creature up there and sat in silent terror, making sure it didn't fly down to suck my blood or gouge my eyeballs out or something like that. God forbid I wouldn't just get up and turn the light on to see what it actually was or call my dad for help. I was scared absolutely stiff. At some point, uh, fatigue must have set in and I finally fell asleep, even with the unknown creature lurking about up in the corner of my room. And in the morning as the sun came up and shone through the windows, I awoke to see what it was up in the corner, but it was a big, gigantic, furry moth up there in the corner. And it wasn't any ordinary moth. I mean, it was one of the, it was, I had to look it up online. It was a sphinx moth, this big, like four inch moth in my room, terrifying creature of the night, right? 
This harmless little creature kept me from resting and sleeping well. I couldn't face the unknown. And all kidding aside, perhaps you're in a, a, an acute or specific struggle with that thought, the thought of the unknown, whether it be the unknown or uncertainty in life about, about maybe the direction of your life. Young people in the room, you may be uh, wrestling with the unknown of relationships or college or career, maybe an upcoming final or a test. Middle-aged folks and young families may be wrestling with the unknown of past decisions that they've made and, and their future effect on their life. Or perhaps you're wrestling with the unknown of the outcome of raising your children in a, a certain manner or direction. Maybe there's some of you in the room that are nearing the unknown of the number of your days. You're getting older and your health is waning and you don't know how much time you have left. We can all kind of fill in the blank, can't we, of the unknown in our lives or the uncertain things that, that we have. And in this passage, as Paul seeks to encourage and be encouraged by his friends, the, the church at Philippi, all, all of this is in the context of the unknown or uncertainty. He doesn't know what the future holds for him. Will he be delivered from physical imprisonment or not? Will he once again gather with the saints at Philippi and worship the Lord with them? Will he even live to see them again? He doesn't really know this, but this brings us to our main idea. What do we do in, in the face of the unknown? In, when we're facing unknown things, we're, we have to remember what is known. We have to remember what is known when facing the unknown. If we go all the way back into the Old Testament scriptures, a, a few hundred years before Paul's ministry, the Israelites were faced with the unknown as they wandered around in the wilderness for a number of years, led by Moses. And nearing the, the end of his life, that's Moses, he, he encouraged God's people with the word of the Lord. Moses uh, wrote the first five books of scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Israelites didn't know. They had uncertainty. They didn't know how much longer Moses was going to live. They didn't know if his heir apparent, Joshua, would, would lead them well. They certainly didn't know all that awaited them in the land of promise. And yet Moses, on this kind of the brink of death, getting towards the end of his life in the book of Deuteronomy, he speaks into the unknown with what is known. He gives them confidence in what is known about God. He says this in, in Deuteronomy 31.6. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. The, the, them there is the unknown of the circumstances that they're heading into in the land of promise, all the uncertainty and unknown, unknown in their lives. And this is what he, he tells them now what is known. This is what is known. He says, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He knows this truth, that God is with them. And as a result of that, he says that he gives them this confident promise. He will not leave you or forsake you. That promise still stands for God's people. So much unknown to fear and be in dread of. And yet the emphasis here is what do we know? What do we know to be certain? We know this from this passage in Deuteronomy, that God is with us and that he will not leave us or forsake us. And so as you stress about the unknowns of all the, the, what the future holds, it's, you know, the, we're entering into a year of, oh boy, political elections, right? Gas prices are, are skyrocketing. Some of my friends back home in California are showing pictures of $6 a gallon gas back there. 
Bank account balances, right? We worry about that. Relational problems. Maybe even you have a a legal fight on your hand right now, and you're not sure what will happen. There's so many unknowns and uncertainties. Yet if we, we know this to be true, if we remain, we keep using this word every week, if we abide in Christ, if we stay in him, if we hold to the warm embrace of God the Father, the promise stands, as it says here in Deuteronomy 31.6, I go with you, I will not leave you or forsake you. This is what is known. What else do we need to remember in the face of the unknown? Paul gives us instruction. These are things that we should remember. Number one, remember this. He couples two words together, two statements. Remember the relationship of prayer and the spirit of Christ in our perseverance. Remember the relationship of prayer and the spirit of Christ in our perseverance. Now, I want you to think in this way. When you hear this word perseverance, what does that mean? It means uh, persistence or endurance in a difficult situation, in a difficult set of circumstances. We agree Paul's in a, in a difficult situation, and he's writing to and encouraging a church that is in a difficult situation. What is their difficulties? They face the unknown themselves of suffering and persecution for the message of Christ. They struggle with disunity and disfellowship within the church itself, as we'll find out later. Uh, Some of their leadership is in danger, Paul, and some are struggling with illness, I believe Epaphroditus is. And yet Paul exhorts in this manner in 18 and 19, yes, and I will rejoice, For I know that through, hear this, again, coupled together, through your prayers, okay, so the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, God's Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. Remember what is known when facing the unknown. Paul knows this truth in the midst of a difficult situation in which he must remain faithful to God and persevere, persist in a difficult situation. He is certain that this beloved body of believers contends with him and for him through this means, the means of prayer. Paul is confident that this church is praying for him and this church can be confident that Paul is praying for them. It's going both ways. In the unity of prayer, and then Paul adds this to it, with the spirit of Christ. Paul is certain, and he says, that this will turn out for his deliverance. Now, now this term, deliverance, may be misconstrued to relate only to his release from prison, which it, it may pertain to that. He may have that thought in mind, but ultimately, The connotation of the original word used here relates more to his salvation. It's the same word that we get the word salvation from, or redemption, reconciliation to God. Paul is confident in this truth, in this known thing. Paul is confident that united in prayer and in the Holy Spirit, he will achieve deliverance from all the unknown by engaging and believing in what is known. That's the prayers from his brothers and sisters with help from the Spirit of Christ. Children in in my life, I love kids. Children are always a great encouragement to me. I love the sound of children in the life of our church and just in life in general. A few years ago, we, we hosted our first annual World Vision 6K for water at Broad Run Park. It's a, a run, walk run that we do once a year, usually in the month of August, to raise money for water, uh, wells and stuff to be dug out in uh, developing nations. And as the first one, I was a bit stressed around the event. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. 
And when we started the race, we had a map mapped out for how the race would go around Broad Run Park. And a pack of uh, teenage boys and children from our church uh, who were all actively running cross country or were athletic, good, in good shape kind of kids, they set out and set the pace right off the bat in the run. And me and my stress, I was worried that they were going to deviate from the map and miss a turn, and then everybody else would be off course for the rest of the race. Mess up the whole course map for everybody. And so I was determined that I was going to catch up to them. I was tracking my miles on my, on my Apple Watch, and we were clipping in at about seven-minute miles when we started out. My brother Michael was trying to keep up with us, and he couldn't. <laughs> Okay, seven-minute miles wasn't too fast for these younger guys, these kids, but it was way too, a- too fast for this old fat guy, me, right? <laughs> I settled in next to my little competition buddy, uh, comes to our 9 o'clock service. Some of you may know him, Levi Smith. Levi Smith is a powerful young man for God. Uh, he just celebrated his birthday yesterday. I think he just turned 12. We were both, and this was a few years ago, so he was probably about 10 years old. We're both huffing and puffing next to each other. We're not sure. We're uncertain. The unknown, if we could endure to the end of the race at this pace that all the guys in front of us were setting. And Levi, this little 10-year-old guy, he said to me through, the, through his breath, running, he goes, Pastor Keith, I pray from Isaiah that this is true today. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. (laughs) I was like, okay. And we, you want to know what happened? We finished the race strong together. I will never forget when he said that to me. The encouragement from that young man. He was confident in the Lord. He was determined, but we were both tired and weary. We were just ready to walk, right? We just wanted to walk and for it to be in. But we got a boost from each other, and also we got a boost from the word of the Lord in that instance. And his memory, he had committed that to memory, and that came out then. It was beautiful. So cool. Remember what is known clearly from Scripture. We need the prayers and encouragement of each other. And this, it's almost like Paul is making this out. Like this is the conduit or the channel that the Lord chooses to bless us with the empowering and filling of his Holy Spirit. They're together so that we may run and not grow weary, so that we may persevere in the race and reach deliverance in the Lord, salvation. Paul had more confidence in the Lord and his sovereign hand to complete the work of deliverance. I'm sure of that. And yet he still teaches, he still exhorts the Philippian church to pray and rely on the empowering help of the Spirit of God, right? Shouldn't we do the same? Church, I believe this. This is a powerful praying church. Continue in it. Would you pray for me? Would you contend for me? I will pray for you. Would you pray for each other? Would you lift each other up in prayer? I promise you, the Holy Spirit will bless this church if we would pray for one another. I pray, Father, Spirit, fall afresh on this church this morning.
Fill us anew again. Let us be amazed by your glory and your grace. Number two, remember the relationship of eager expectation and hope in, I'm gonna use an interesting word here, judgment. Remember the relationship of eager expectation and hope. Paul once again combines two words to get his point across here. He says this in verse 20, and it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. What is he meaning there? He's speaking to the point that when he stands before God, that he will not be ashamed. He's talking about the judgment of God. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul again here has decided to use two words to bring us to the point of his confidence in the Lord's deliverance. The first word is eager expectation. The second word is hope, okay? Eager expectation gives us this idea that his, it's his strong belief in deliverance from God's judgment, and it's a belief that's so strong that it's unshakable. It doesn't move. That's his eager expectation. As if this emphasis wasn't enough, that he will not be ashamed, he then adds and hope to the phrase, that he will not be ashamed. Again, I believe he's, he's referring to his deliverance from this, sin's curse, uh, being redeemed in Christ, salvation in Jesus, escape from the negative judgment of God. It is his eager expectation and hope that God will not judge him negatively. Now, we have to dig into this word hope here because I believe our English word falls short of what Paul's getting at. I don't think we understand the depth of the original word choice of the apostle. I'm going to illustrate it for you. Personally, in, in my personal life, I'm trying to get my running routine back in order again. We know this last week and going into this next week, we've been blessed with some beautiful weather. And so in the morning this last Thursday, instead of going to Planet Fitness in Shepherdsville and running on the boring treadmill, I decided to run outside. And where I live is just kind of a stone's throw away from Highway 44. So I went out to Highway 44 and set out towards kind of coming from the Mount Washington direction down towards Bullet Central High School. And I'm running on 44, crossing over Floyd's Fork Bridge there where 44 crosses the river. And the traffic is, is moving on 44, right, especially in the morning. And so I had to kind of jump down into a ditch there along where the, there's a horse farm right there, right before a package store as you're heading towards Bullet Central. And when I'm running, I noticed down in the ditch that there was a scratch-off lotto ticket down there. <laughs> and so I was heading out. It was just an out-and-back run. And, and so, like, mental note, when I come back... I'm picking up that scratch off because I hope that it's a multi-million dollar winner so that North Bullet Christian Church can build a new building and not meet in a basketball gym anymore. That was my hope. And I thought with that intention of spending the money in that way that the Lord would honor that hope. I don't have some sort of amazing announcement for you this morning, so I, know, I think you know how that worked out. My wife's probably wondering why there's a scratch-off lotto ticket in the trash can, because like, I don't ever buy lotto tickets. So I hoped that this would happen, right? But it was not, I was not super confident in the outcome. I know the probabilities of winning the lotto, especially with scratch-off tickets. Our English word hope, right, falls far short of Paul's 
use of the word hope in this context. Paul has confidence when he uses the word hope here that the outcome is determined and secure, that it's going to happen. The author of Hebrews uses the same word in Hebrews 6, 18 to 19, when he says this, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Isn't that beautiful? I hoped the lotto ticket was a winner, but I certainly wasn't eagerly expecting it to be a winner. (laughs) In, In stark contrast, we have eager expectation and hope that we will not at all be ashamed when we face the great judge God. Because we have faith in the righteousness of another, his son, Jesus Christ. Just as Paul did. Which brings us to an implication of this statement that he's making. What is implied here? The implication of the statement is that there will be a day of reckoning or judgment where we all will stand before the Lord. Which then brings us to this question. Are you ready to face God? Are you ready to face the Lord? Paul was, had eager expectation and hope that when he faced God, that he would not be ashamed. Do you have that same eager expectation and hope? And if you don't, what are you going to do about it? I want to share a good message with you this morning. That all of us can take hold, that we can all have this anchor for our soul, as Paul did. We all can eagerly expect and have hope, like Paul did, that we will not be ashamed when we face the judgment of God. How do we, need, how do we get that? How do we obtain this eager expectation and this deep hope that Paul has? Simply through faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's the truth of the matter. On our own, in our own will, our own desires, we fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners by nature and by practice. We have sinned against God. We have disobeyed his commands. But God, in his divine plan, saw fit to send his son, Jesus Christ, to to leave a position of, of honor and glory in heaven and to humble himself and come to earth and take on human flesh in order that he would live perfectly in our place in perfect obedience to the law of the Father and also the will of the Father. And we find that it's prophesied beforehand That it was the will of the Father that Jesus would come, that he would live perfectly in our place, and also this truth, that he would die in our place for our sins. Jesus was sent to the cross of shame, and he was crucified. He received the wrath of God at that place, at the cross. He shed his blood as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, 
Jesus died bodily on the cross. He went into the grave. There was a big old heavy stone that was rolled across the the front of this tomb. And on the third day, by the power of the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. That stone was rolled away and he emerged alive. And thousands of people witnessed this and their lives were radically transformed. And we believe this, that if you place your faith and your trust, your confidence in the righteousness of Jesus, not in your own quote-unquote good works, but the works of Christ, that you will be reconciled to God and you will not face the judgment of God in the manner that in someone in unbelief or rejection of Christ will. That you can have an eager expectation and hope that you will not be ashamed when you are confronted with the righteousness of God because you will be clothed in the righteousness of his son. Safe, redeemed in him. Are you ready? That's the question. Have you received this free gift from God? In, in Christ, we can have an eager expectation and hope by remaining in him that we will be delivered on the day of judgment. Moreover, we hold fast to this position in our present circumstances. Again, it's what is known, it's certain, it's sure as a, as a steadfast anchor for our souls. It is so certain in the life of Paul that he makes this beautiful claim in Romans 8.1 when he says this, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are positioned with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It brings us then to this, us to this conclusion. The Bible's laying it all out for us if heaven is as great as it is promised, this is what Paul's wrestling with, with this, in this passage also. If heaven is as great as it's promised and portrayed, why not just go there now? Why wallow around in the, in the fullness of this broken creation? Paul states this in verse 21. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul would, would later wrestle, wrestle with the same issue in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm not going to read that passage. It's in your notes. You can read it for yourself. But he, he understands the difficulty of physical life here and yet the beauty of a Christ-honoring life as he has exampled for the church at Philippi. And we'll finish our time exploring this amazing verse again. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's, we're going to split it into two different phrases. So here's the, the first phrase. To live is Christ. Now, now I'm going to admit an amazing benefit of, of working uh, at a church is you get, you get to work with your friends. I get to work with my friends, men and women who are dedicated to understanding God's word with you in through, we have office discussions. And Nate, he's our discipleship uh, pastor. Nate and I had an office discussion this past week about this verse, and I I think it was Monday morning or Tuesday. I'm sitting in my office, and I, I said, Nate, come over here. He's right across the hall from me. I said, what in the world does it mean to live as Christ? What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what does it mean to live as Christ? And he looked at me and he goes, I don't know. <laughs> but has anybody thought about that? To live as Christ? Like, what? In, so that was what I kind of set out this week. Like, what does this mean? 
We, we repeat this anthemic phrase, don't we? It's like an anthem for Christians. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But what does it mean to live as Christ? Have we plumbed the depths of this statement? Have we burdened our hearts with, its full, with the, the fullness of its implications? Paul gives us further insight. I think he, he makes this statement and then he starts to explain the details of what this means. I'm, I'm going to split the rest of our passage up. So we'll look at verses 22 and then skip to 24 to 26. To live is Christ. He says this, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. So, so there's the tension in his life. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's speaking to the church, his beloved church in Philippi. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you, have, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again, right? To live as Christ, that's what we're thinking about. To live as Christ means to go about doing the work of Jesus. He's entrusted his work to us. Did you know that? He's commissioned us. He's set us apart on mission for him, his people. Paul calls this a fruitful labor in this passage. This goes back to our, to our need again. So this is why he would start off the passage by saying, hey, you guys need to pray for one another and you need to pray for me. And you need the help of the spirit of Christ because we can't do this work if we're not praying for each other and we definitely can't do this work if we don't have the spirit of Christ within us. We can pray, though, in this manner. Here's an example of how we can pray for ourselves, and we can change a few words and pray for one another. This is, this is our prayer this morning. Holy Spirit, please fill me afresh with the wonder of God living inside of me and empowering me. Holy Spirit, called the helper, please enable me to be fruitful for the kingdom of God and not just building my kingdom and my priorities. Holy Spirit, please enable me to embrace the gifting you have given me and aid me in serving the church to the fullest extent and measure that you have entrusted to me. Amen. 19th century Presbyterian minister John Eady describes this portion of scripture in this manner. He says this, quote, this is in your notes, for, for me to live is Christ... Now he's going to explain it. It's beautiful. He says, the preaching of Christ is the business of my life, the presence of Christ, the cheer of my life, the image of Christ, the crown of my life, the spirit of Christ, the life of my life, the love of Christ, the power of my life, the will of Christ, the law of my life, and the glory of Christ, the end of my life. Christ was the absorbing element of his, that's Paul's life. If he traveled, it was on Christ's errand or job. If he suffered, it was in Christ's service. When he spoke, his theme was Christ. And when he wrote, as we find here, Christ filled his letters. Oh Lord, would you fill this church with a people who, even in the face of the unknown or uncertainty, live in a manner honorable to Christ, where Christ saturates our wants and desires, our lives and purpose and mission. And yet in the Christian life, we also have this. It's the second part of the phrase. We have no fear of death. There are, there's such an interesting thing that occurs when you attend the funeral service of a believer. Because there can be incredible grief in the room, but there's this underlying joy. When you know someone has been reconciled to Christ, has lived a life that's honorable to Jesus, there's just a celebratory undertone, even in the midst of tears. 
that you know that they, they heard the words when as soon as that last breath went out, they heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So now we're going to look at to die is gain. Right? And, and again, we're dealing with facing the unknown. We have no fear of an unknown beyond the last physical breath we take if we are indeed in Christ. There's no fear. No fear of death. To die is gain, Paul says. How do we know that? Here, here's the first truth that we can uh, pull out of this passage. There's, there's no sleeping period when we physically die awaiting the glorious return of Christ. If we die in Christ today or tomorrow or beyond, we are immediately taken to where he is. Did you know that? Heaven, we call it. Paradise. The scriptures teach, absent from the body, present with the Lord. What does that mean? What's the implications of this? Hear this. There will be no further trials or tribulations. Some of you want to hear this word. There will be no further treatments. You with me? No more testing or refining of fire. But what awaits is this. It's perfection and glory. Here's, the, here's this word. Sinlessness. I don't have to contend with sin anymore. I want that. I'm tired of struggling with sin. I'm tired of temptation. I'm tired of wrestling with the flesh. We will be sinless. I had a, a retired pastor one time uh, years ago, about a decade ago, he came into my office and Tuesday morning he would run copies for a Bible study that he would do at the little coffee shop and he came in and he goes, Keith, think about this. What would your life be like if there was no sin in the world? I said, I don't know, man. <laughs> I can't imagine it. Think about it for just a second. To die is gain. And Paul says in verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better, right? Think about the chains that are gripping his arms. The hatred and vitriol raining down on him from the Roman guards and the Jews, his brothers, hate him for his faith. Paul struggles with this truth in 2 Corinthians 5 also, verses 6 and 8. He says this, so we always... So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, to be in the presence of God. We have nothing to fear because of what we do know. Even in the midst of unknown circumstances, Paul in this passage has so many unknown things in his life. And yet he's so joyful. He's rejoicing in the Lord in the chains. Because he knows to, to live as Christ, to die is gain. There's no surprises. Facing the unknown. We, we must always remember and focus on what is known in the midst of the unknown. We know this this morning. We know that God is with us. We know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. 
He works, we know this, he works through the prayers of his people on behalf of one another as the conduit of the spirit of Christ for our deliverance, as Paul says. We can be confident by remaining, abiding in Jesus that he will complete the work he has started. So that's why Paul would say, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will complete the work he has started. And we can approach this in, as Paul says here, in eager expectation and hope. And finally, we, we live our lives, right? To live as Christ, we live our lives to honor Jesus and also to die as gain, to look forward to the day of great gain upon death or hopefully soon the return of Jesus. Jesus. 